So the next part of this section called Practicing Dharma is uh, a session of questions and answers. And I believe that uh, uh, this um, is the same series or very uh, from the original recording uh, it was made in uh, the during the rains retreat of 1979 uh, Lumpur Chow was spending the rains retreat at the the village monastery where he was a, a, a temple boy and a novice and a, a young monk in the village of Bangkok which is about uh, a mile and a half a couple of kilometers away from from Wapapong and the, the village had donated that monastery to be a, a branch of um Arjun Chah's uh, community and so he'd gone there and he was spending the uh, the rains retreat with uh, I think two other western monks uh, well a Japanese, Arjun Gawesuko, Japanese monk Arjun Titignano, uh, French monk and then a uh, an Australian novice and a, a, a British um, Anagarika so he was there with four foreigners and part of it was to give him a chance to, to rest up a bit. And uh, so uh, that was actually the, the place where I last saw him and last spoke with him. I took my leave at the end of the rains retreat of 79 and came back to England. And that was where I saw him. So during that, that Vasa, Ajahn Jagaro, who was the, then the abbot of Wat Pananachat, he brought a whole group of, of Western uh, monks and novices over to, to visit Lumpur Chah in Bangkok. So again, that's what Pananachat is very close. It's, not, uh, it's only about um, five or six miles away from, from Wapapong, so it's very easy to get there. And so this is a recording of the questions and answers. So mostly I think the questions are being asked by Ajahn Jagaro, uh, who um, is, he's returned to lay life now because uh, 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 his name is John Chanchiosi, lives in Chicago. But he was the abbot of Wat um uh, in that period. And so uh, he's gone over to take the opportunity to ask a number of Dhamma questions uh, from Rupachar. So it begins with uh, asking the question. As to what you were saying about investigating Sankara after the mind has reached an appropriate level of tranquility, we've heard this mentioned many times such as in the instructions for meditating on the 32 parts of the body. By employing concepts and recollection to investigate like this, is one able to come to genuine insight? And Paul responds, You do need to use the concepts at first. Actually, the truth can never be reached by thinking and perceiving. Any kind of concept, negative or positive, will not make an end of things. But... It's the only way to instruct people. We're talking for the children to understand, to show them that they must do this and this and this. When you get to the end, there'll be nothing left, no thing left. You don't want to be following any mental formations. If you believe that your conceptions are wisdom, then you're constantly being led around by them. They are merely sankara, conditioned phenomena, and the knowing is not a self and also should be let go of. Consciousness is merely consciousness, not a being, a person, an individual, or a self. Put it down. Let it be finished with. How much tranquility should one develop? Enough to be able to contemplate things, to have the mindfulness to make this investigation, 
So, this means remaining in the present, not thinking of the past or the future? And Paul responds, You can think of the past and future, but don't get caught up taking any of it as real. The mind has to think of all kinds of things, but not believe in it. Understand what thoughts are and that they are only thoughts. The point is not to get caught up by thinking and follow after it. If you follow your thinking, you'll always have issues and problems. It's better to end this kind of involvement with appearances. Mind is merely mind. It's not a being, an individual, a person, a self. This is called awareness of the mind. It's not yours. Pleasure is merely pleasure. Pain is merely pain. When you see things in this way, there are no doubts. What's called investigating or contemplating uses the faculty of thought to look at things, but eventually it comes to see something beyond thought. Because as you practice, you learn not to fixate on or believe in these perceptions. Thoughts and feelings are merely thoughts and feelings. That which we are talking about does not arise and does not cease. It abides as it is. Or, to put it simply, it is not born and does not die. So many significant uh, themes there. And uh, Ajahn Jagro is a very inquisitive mind. He was a scientist. I think he was a, he was a, a, um, a chemical engineer um, uh, before he was a monk. So he's got a, a scientific turn of mind and uh, had... Uh, many, many questions, and uh, also the propensity to want to you know, understand things. It's very natural. But what Lumpur is pointing to here is that, uh, repeatedly, is that concepts, thoughts, words can only uh, go so far that, the, as he said, the um, you know, the uh, the truth can never be re- reached by thinking and perceiving. So that uh, words, thoughts, concepts. Uh, are, are tools to bring about a, a certain uh, change of, of attitude, a change of understanding, a change of vision. But the the reality of things, uh, that fundamental nature of uh, of, of dhamma, of the of uh, ultimate truth, it's not a concept. It, it's not a word. It's not a, a something that can be contained within within an idea. Uh, and, that, and if you are, as you said, if you, if you believe that your conceptions are wisdom, then you're constantly being led around by them. They're merely sankara, conditioned phenomena. So that if we're looking for a sense of completion or certainty or, or a sort of perfect description in the realm of, our, of concepts and words, then we're always going to be disappointed. Uh, and that there's never going to be quite enough words, no, quite enough ideas, or never quite comprehensive enough. And it's not as though you haven't got quite the right words, but it's rather the, the example I like to give is if you have a drawing of a teacup, it's a two-dimensional drawing, but you can't put three-dimensional tea into a two-dimensional teacup. Like the the cup hasn't got enough dimensions. It's a drawing. It's only two D. The the tea is three D, <laughs> and so it just words, concepts, uh, ideas. They don't have enough dimensions to accommodate. The reality of things, and no matter how good the words are, or how comprehensive they might seem to be, they can never truly embody that that reality. And so the the Buddha saw this from from very early on, 
and it, right from the from the get-go he saw there was no point trying to describe ultimate reality in terms of words well, what you could do is describe the path to the realization uh, of that reality to, to the actualization of the the knowing of that that words could be used for so he, he uses words for uses the tools where the tools are applicable but um, just like the the nourishment that comes from eating um, it's helped by having spoons and dishes and, and a cooker and so forth but if you just got spoons and dishes and bowls and a, and a cooker you're still hungry <laughs> you haven't uh, that's not where the food comes from but words and concepts ideas questions they, these are are like the tools that we have in a kitchen or a workshop um, that enable a certain set of processes to to uh, be uh, uh, enacted but uh, the uh, the uh, the result of that of that action of working with those tools it's not say connected to the uh, it's not so embodied in those tools but rather it's in say the uh, the, the food that is cooked or the 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 uh, object that is is constructed in in the workshop and as uh, and then this last uh, point here where he says um Thoughts and feelings are merely thoughts and feelings. That which we are talking about, in terms of Dhamma, the ultimate reality, does not arise and does not cease. It's uh, unborn, uh, undying, ajatanga uh, bhutang, amata, deathless. It abides as it is. Or to put it simply, it is not born and does not die. So, any questions, thoughts? Yes. Masters um, propagate the Asuba meditation, 32 parts and corpse and all that. But theoretically, I already find it quite disgusting. <laughs> and uh, I know they try to ask us to look at the loathsomeness of it until the point where we get disenchanted with the body. But are there certain personality or people who are just not suitable mm-hmm. um, to use this kind of practice? Uh, yes, yeah. It's usually, um, if the mind is more inclined towards desire and, and lustfulness and sensuality, then asupa kamatana. That and asupa literally means not beautiful. So that the it's just seeing things as they are. The developing the sense of of disgustingness or loathsomeness is called the patikula sanya. So that the so that's like the deliberately off-putting. Asupa just means not beautiful. So it's really. Uh, it's it's in a sense seeing things without a a sense of attraction to them, but not not cultivating a uh, that off-putting quality, which the patikula sanya is. Um, but yeah, if your mind is already inclined towards aversion and negativity or criticism, then it can uh, uh, then the practice of, of that unattractiveness of the body and, and the 32 parts and so on it can if it's not handled skillfully it can lead just to more aversion negativity and um uh so vibhava tanha and that's so that it's a um, if the mind is more of a, a tosa chirit an aversion type then it's not so helpful it's more useful to be cultivating loving kindness and compassion forgiveness and those kind of uh, more Positive qualities. It's one of the reasons why it's why the um, 
one of the qualities of a sapurisa, a well-rounded person, is knowing your own character. You know, you're a dosa-charit, moha-charit, loba-charit. You know, you're a greed type, a delusion type, a aversion type. So getting to know your own personality, your own, the conditioning, so that then you're using the tools that are appropriate to the, the conditioning of the mind. Yes. Uh, I don't know. There was a book uh, drawing on the right side of the brain, something like this. Oh, drawing. Oh, drawing on the right side of the brain. Yes, uh, about how there are two different modes of the brain to operate: linear, with words, with time, mm. and so on, logical, and the second one is more whole, like when you perceive the whole thing at the same time and. You can enter this uh, state by drawing or by going into details. Basically, you're losing um, purpose uh, or goal, time, so it disappears when you enter it. Mm -hmm. So, and people who go in and out, they stay, they say that some concepts or words they can break it, so they switch on again the conceptual, linear, and uh, goal oriented uh, type of thinking or mode of thinking, uh, would it be similar to what Rambo is talking about, that uh, if it's inside, it's not verbal, it's kind of before the words and it's all com comprehensive, where if you use concepts, it's different mode, so it can lead you to the second type, but uh, there are basically two, like, like a switch, <laughs> either one or another. Uh, yeah, I would say it's close to that. Um... I mean, Lumpur was a very wordy person. He talked a lot. <laughs> so he used words and concepts and, you know, stories and analogies. He was a brilliant at coming up with ways of describing things. So he was extremely skilled at using words and ideas and, and images, just like, you know, the Buddha. But it's, uh, it's keeping those things in perspective so that it's when the... Um, if, there, if there's a flexibility whereby the, the 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 mind can use either sort of yes, in this this way of speaking the left side or the right side, <laughs> you know, that you can be logical and systematic when you need to be, but also you can be uh, thinking in a in a holistic or non-conceptual uh, organic way uh, if you need to, and so if both are working together, then I would say that's the the best balance. But you know, say someone like. Uh, like Venerable Sariputta uh, had, had a lot of right brain, oh, uh, left brain, a lot of left brain activity. You know, it's incredibly systematic and and thorough. And also the Buddha, you know, all the lists that the Buddha made. You know, that's that's a very uh, lo you know, logical. And then the lists are almost always in sort of beginning with the coarsest and going to the most refined, and and uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of different lists he could just create. So. I would say, as a, but also he could, uh, he had obviously profound insight, profound wisdom, and also incredible imagination. You know, he would come up with, with completely spontaneously formed images or stories or ways of describing things. So I would say what we have in the suttas is a really good example of a, <laughs> a, a well-balanced, uh, uh, so left side, right side, uh, both the, so the logical and rational and the uh, intuitive and... Um, uh, say and holistic, the um, where it, the when there's too much uh, left brain activity, then what happens is that 
the the mind is constantly trying to find certainty in words and concepts and thinking if you just explain things well enough if you just sort of get the right word then then you'll cover it you'll explain it you'll pin it all down um and uh that uh, it's that's the what Lumpur uh, is talking about here is that no matter how good the words are how sort of form carefully formed the concepts are it can't really encompass the reality if you remember that the words are just pointers that they're just uh, sort of convenient tools then you can re- then they, they can be used to to great good effect and they're re- they're really handy very helpful as i said you know, he talked to it incredible amount it was a very very imaginative and flexible teacher but it's where the the mind is looking for certainty in that which is necessarily uncertain you're looking for, for something absolute in what is necessarily uh, relative and then it creates difficulties when i was in in germany last year and um, i just uh, that uh, we just published this this book called um mind is what matters and i dedicated it it's about the phenomenological approach of the buddha and i dedicated it to this this german philosopher edmund husserl who was a founder of uh, of uh, phenomenology in the sort of modern era but i felt it, what you know, what i know of his teachings and, and the buddha's approach in that area are very very compatible very similar so i dedicated it to husserl and then um uh, this uh, this German fellow, actually a former partner of Sister Sobita, Bernd, Bernd Goltz, he asked if he could translate it into German, and then the the monastery in Germany um, uh, they said they were they were interested to do a, a German edition, a printed German edition of the book, and so uh, anyway, I, I was uh, there and spending time with running an ordination ceremony for Mutodaya Monastery. And Ajahn Metiko, um, who's also very brilliant uh, with language and uh, and concepts, and is extraordinarily knowledgeable about the suttas, and uh, he, he chanted the Patimokha. He made one mistake in thirteen thousand words. He had one error, and I made the comment to to, to him. I said, That's, uh, you know, I've never I've never sat in on a Patimokha that was so accurate you know like no mistakes in one mistake in 13,000 words of recited text in Pali and then Ajahn Jutamalo who's the other co-abbot there said yeah he just that that was his bindu mark you know actually he didn't really need to make a mistake he just sort of spoiled it for the sake of just uh, propriety like you know we we mark our robes with a bindu mark so that was his bindu he didn't actually really make a mistake (laughs) So anyway, uh, the, my going away gift from uh, Ajahn uh, Metiko and the Sangra at, um, uh, at uh, Mutadaya was a copy of Jean-Paul Sartre's um, Being and Nothingness. And um, uh, and so uh, and I hadn't read this great thick tome, I saw this great work that was very, very famous and influential and uh, in the um, and also a background in phenomenology and also it was very influential in the, the kind of um, intellects of uh, the 50s and 60s it was a uh, uh, Lumpur would describe when he was at, at Berkeley University people sitting in cafes clutching their t- copies of being and nothingness <laughs> and I started reading it 
And uh, yeah, it's like, okay, well, give me this this great thick book, and you know, I should delve into it. But um, uh, with all due respect to my dear friends at Mutadaya and my respect to Jean Paul Sartre, it's like you're trying to describe the undescribable. You're trying to put into words um, what is what is beyond words, and that there's this feeling of no matter how hard you try, you, you can't really pin it down. And that there's this, uh, and I was the 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 kind of a, um, sincerity with which sort of the language was used and how it was trying to to describe things. There's always this sense of well, this is this is all two dimensional. This can't really encompass the the actuality. And there's so there's so much of a uh, in the way of a different perspectives that that could be could be brought to this. So I feel that one of the most extraordinary, wonderful things of the Buddha's teaching is that he saw right from the beginning, you can't put this into words. But then the words can be useful to describe the path to, to uh, the direct realization of what is, what is beyond language, what's beyond concepts. Mm. So it seems that um, if you act according to reality, you act not from a concept, right? But from this more holistic view. <laughs> and when you begin to act from this uh, narrow kind of concept and idea and words and how things should be, then you run into troubles and it's not accurate, it's not holistic. So basically, which one is primal? Which one uh, <laughs> kind of uh, you act from, right? It's, uh, well, I would say they inform each other. Because if there's too much right side of the brain, then uh, it's very easy to to get get lost. It's like a you know a landscape without a map, and that it's very uh, easy to get uh, to that lack of definition, uh, and they're just working on, a, on like a, an intuitive uh, level, then the mind can be missing all kinds of signals or references or or, or not realizing how associations or how things are connected so that the uh, too much right brain and not enough left brain then you you can you can really space out or 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 uh, lose that quality of of um, attunement to the time the place the situation so uh, I would hesitate to say you know which one is sort of more primal or more basic. I would say that it's we have both aspects as part of the, uh, our nature, and it's the, really the integration of the two uh, that is what's going to bring the the most beneficial results. Yes, I didn't take in the whole reading. It was too much for me to take in all at once. So perhaps I'm not quite catching. But what I understood is um, in regard to direct realization, it's not something we cognize, it's not something we think, it's not a concept that we can describe in words, although we can try to use words, as you're saying. But at the same time, it seems like in order for a human to have any insight, realization, wisdom, whatever word you want to use for the non-conceptual, still perception has to function even though it is a sankara mm -hmm. and it's impermanent. Is that is that your understanding or did I miss something in the reading? 
No, I would say that yeah, the mind has to be awake and the, and the, the, the senses functioning to at least you know, some degree. But it's the, when he says, you know, it's not a perception, it's not a concept, then it's like there's the, the mind latching on to a perception or latching on to a concept and then being born into that, then it loses its perspective. It kind of the, the, the context is, is lost. And it's, so when people describe moments of, uh, of great realization or it's human, it's not like suddenly all of the, 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 they stop seeing or hearing or something or tasting or touching. The whole experiential field is, is still there. But it's then the, the mind relates to that experiential field in a, in a radically different way. It's also, you know, it's, it's quite, it's not uncommon that young children who don't have a particularly uh, thoroughly formed map of the world in their, in their mind, that they can have experiences of great clarity that are absolutely genuine. And that... Uh, and this seeing things in a completely different way, just their ordinary everyday perceptions just sort of drop away. They're still there. They're still seeing and hearing, smelling, and tasting, touching. But the you know the world is, is very very different, and that the, their their normal way of seeing themselves and the family and the, where they are it all just changes. So and it's it's not that uncommon for for young children to you know the three four five years old six years old. To, those kind of experiences often they they fall away from about seven or eight onwards and <laughs> the thinking faculties kick in but uh, it's not that uncommon where where younger children at you know, three four five years old will have these these very insightful moments it's also they're not pre-verbal but when they have those type of moments it becomes very difficult even as they get older to try to describe them Mm-hmm. So I don't know that, I mean, they may or may not get lost, you know, to memory or what have mm-hmm. you, but they may be very difficult to even sort of explain to themselves other than as sort of a, a visual experience or mm-hmm. a seeing, if you will. Yeah, or just as, uh, it was it was so good when I was, when I was young. <laughs> That's it. That's as much of a, of a description. I remember one uh, one uh, person I knew in the States. She was an Indian background, and I was teaching uh, about the the inner listening, uh, Nada yoga on a, on a retreat, and she said, "I'd totally forgotten. This was my best friend when I was a child. I used to lie in bed for hours just listening to this sound. I'd wake up early in the morning before everyone was awake, and I just listen. So this was how did I forget?" <laughs> And it just, you know, she was in her fifties by by the time I met her. Like uh, something distracted me, <laughs> but she said yeah, she could remember for for many you know, years of her childhood, from like three, four, five years old. That was this was my best friend, my most kind of cherished companion was listening to this uh, inner sound, and then the education and growing up and all that certainly kind of uh, masked all of that. Anyway, to continue. Let's take this mind. We call it mind in order to have some idea about it, to know its activities. But talking about the real mind, well, what is beyond the mind? Where does the mind come from? When we look at it, we see arising and ceasing. 
what is arising and ceasing is not actually the mind itself, but some sort of feeling, meaning mental impressions and conceptual activity. The ultimate truth is not something that comes into existence and disappears in that way. But these things that appear and disappear are called mind in the way of designation and convention. In the way of conventional reality, we believe in our mental activity as being what it appears to be, and we call it our mind. But where does this mind come from? Having had the habit of believing in mind for such a long time, we're not very happy right now. Isn't that so? At first, we have to see impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness as the nature of the mind. But the truth is that there is really nothing there. It is empty. We see arising and passing away, but actually nothing is arising and passing away. We see the arising and ceasing by relying on perception and conceptualization, but then we take this perception to be wisdom. We grasp the mental activity as wisdom. This is not genuine wisdom. If it is wisdom, everything is finished with. There is no more involvement. We are aware of perceptions and feelings, but don't get involved with them. We realize that following after them is not the path. So again, very pithy, uh, uh, potent uh, teaching there. So the the way we use the word mind is is very broad. Uh, it's a English usage of the word mind is very very broad, um, and so Lumpur is using it in a couple of different ways here. The the real mind, or uh, the the um, uh, the fundamental nature of mind, um, that's one quality. What we call mind is our thoughts and feelings, perceptions, what things that arise and cease. Mental, when we. Uh, what is arising and ceasing is not actually the mind, the fundamental nature of mind itself, but some sort of feeling. You know, these things that appear and disappear are called mind in the way of designation and convention. So they're mental activity, objects of, of uh, awareness. But where does this mind come from? What is the, the fundamental nature of mind? Then he says, at first we have to see impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness as the nature of the mind. So we use those uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta as tools in a way to, to dismantle the habits of attachment to thoughts, feelings, perceptions, uh, concepts and so forth. So we keep saying, oh, this is an impermanent thought. This, this, uh, this emotion is not self or this body is not self. You know, it's... It's not that there really was anything there. <laughs> it's just the mind takes the uh, hold of the perception and makes it into a feeling or a body or a person or a, a, a particular sound. And so that, in a way, the, the three characteristics uh, are um, their ways of describing the illusions that the mind dwells upon. That's what the, 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 we say. It's impermanent, but but the the fact is there isn't really an it that is impermanent. It's just that the mind is making uh, a thing that is changing, but uh, in itself there isn't really any thing permanently and solidly separately there. So the but the uh, these reflections are applied to break those uh, habits of illusion. So that's why Lumpur is saying. But the truth is 
there's really nothing there. There's no thing there. So even the word thing, and oh, you're speaking of German philosophers, that ding an sich, the thing in itself, it's like, well, <laughs> there isn't really any things. There's, you can talk about processes or, or flows of, of perception and impressions, but you can say book. But you know, a, a book is a description of a process. This, this was a tree or several trees. You know, and the ink you know, came from different plants and chemicals. And, and so it comes together and then we say book, dumb a book. And, but then there'll come a day when it falls apart or it, it, it burns or gets, uh, gets rotted and disappears. And it's, book, its bookness will have, have ended. So we think, but this is a thing. This is this is a book. So, well, yeah, by conventional designation, it is. But in itself, it's a it's a set of processes that come together, and the human mind that uses the English language says book. <laughs> it's just one way of of describing it. And so that uh, Lumpur is saying that in truth there is really nothing there. We see arising and passing away, but actually no thing is arising and passing away. So he's in a way kind of talking from. Uh, that place of realization he's talking from the sort of inside that that the circle of uh, enlightenment that uh, he's seeing it from the inside as it were we see the arising and ceasing by relying on perception and conceptualization and then we take that perception and mental activity as wisdom but that, that's not wisdom that's merely like a conceptual understanding but the Real wisdom is a quality of, of, of vision, a quality of, of attitude. If it is wisdom, everything, everything is finished with. There's a mind recognizes there aren't really any things. That any anything that's called a thing is a convenient fiction. It's a description of a, a set of processes, uh, flows of perception and elements that come together in certain forms, like chair, carpet, person, book monastery and so on and so forth we are aware of perceptions and feelings but don't get involved with them we realize that following after them is not the path any questions thoughts okay to continue yes mind is actually nothingness. It's a kind of a little Well, I would say it's not a thingness rather than... Not a thingness. Yes. It's different from emptiness? Well, <laughs> depends how you use the words. But uh, the just because using the English word nothingness can gives a, at least to me, gives a sort of mental image of, of like open space. But say not a thingness is an is it's an odd word or an odd sort of compound, but it gives more of an impression of of oh, this is being held in a certain way, so the mind is creating it as a thing, but it's not really a thing. So, you have actually already answered my question. No. I think that uh, there is a vague or blur uh, speculation to the mind this body as an empty container there's nothing inside if you want there's nothing inside but then who is this person carrying this dead body <laughs> the kind of uh, continuing 
exploration sometimes doesn't have a gravity mm-hmm. to dig out exactly what is this behind this no mind. Because eventually we still eat, sleep, and talk. <laughs> then, so what? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the... It's the, the and it was in yesterday's reading. It was like when Lumpur was putting it. The um, how was it? Um, the wise person needn't be too forceful about every about anything. What is important is to uproot conventional reality, the seeming appearance of things. So it's a kind of loosening of the grip, rather than I am this person, or rather I'm not a person. You know, kind of pushing. It's just that. Holding but not not grasping. So there's a loosening of the grip. So that yes, there is a body and it has lungs and a heart and the, and the, the uh, kidneys and, uh, and bones and yeah. Um, but the mind making that me, that's that's something extra. There is this. So it's like a, a that a lightness of holding. And then that was often how Alan Pochard would talk about it. He said you know, we that uh, say we. Uh, when we talk about letting go, it's not like you've got to throw everything away. Letting go just means that you, when you want to use something, you pick it up. You don't need to, to use it. You put it down. There's no there's no problem. If you need to 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 pick it up again, you can pick it up. And um, so that it's it's the quality of grasping and clinging. That's the 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 problem. It's not the object, or it's, it uh, it doesn't have to be thrown away or discarded. All objects are dangerous. You know, they're just the deadly world of things, but rather it's that loosening the grip. That's uh, the key piece. Yes? But people can have been known to grasp this teaching grabbing you know, the snake by the wrong end, which leads to kind of a fatalistic despair, Zen sickness, we used to call it. And there's a story, I believe, in the, in the suttas of, was it not 500 Bhikkhus who took their lives thinking that there was... No, I don't quite it wasn't 500, it was, uh, it was the wrong grasping of the uh, Asuba Kamatana. Oh. It's, the, it's the background story to the third uh, defeat rule, the third Parajika rule, where the Buddha was giving a lot of instruction about unattractiveness of the body and uh, Asuba Kamatana, and then went off into retreat uh, by himself for a couple of weeks, and when he came out of retreat, he uh, he said to uh, Ananda, Ananda, the, the Sangha seems to be very thinned out. Yeah, <laughs> where where are the monks gone? And uh, it's one of those very strangely potent stories. And what had happened was that um, the effect of the Buddha giving so many teachings about unattractiveness of the body, then the people became disgusted and filled with self hatred, and, and were killing themselves or, or getting. This uh, this one monk to to kill them, uh, to do the killing for them, and so that was why the sangha was was thinned out. It was, it wasn't five hundred. It was something like uh, I think it says in the in the in the the, the Vinaya text something like as many as thirty or forty a day. So quite a few. So it was a pretty horrendous. So then the Buddha started teaching about loving kindness instead. <laughs> And mindfulness of breathing. <laughs> I mean, it's right there. It's in the third Parajika. It's kind of a funny, kind of a funny story. But also, it's interesting with the, the Buddha having these 
psychic powers to say to another, oh, why is the Sangha thinned out? Yeah. That, uh, there's many um, uh, aspects to that, but uh, yeah, so that people can take hold of things in, a, in an unskillful way. That's why good friends and, uh, and helpful teachers uh, are an essential part of the, uh, the holy life. Okay, so to continue. So then a question. How should we practice to reach this point, the true mind? And Paul responds, First you become aware of this apparent mind, realizing that it is uncertain and impermanent. Seeing that clearly, there is nothing that you'll want to take, take hold of, and you'll let go. From knowing, you let go. And there is no more cause for conceptualizing over things, then there will be no doubt. The names we give to things are all conventions and designations in the realm of appearances. It is to help people recognize things. Nature just exists as it is. For example, in this building we have the foundation and the upper stories. The basis on which things exist is not born and does not die. The things that are born and die are running around upstairs. Sometimes we call it mind or perception or conceptualization or whatever. But, to put it simply and directly, there is no form, feeling, perception or thought. They only exist in the way of designation. The aggregates appear and disappear. They don't really exist. Have you read the story of Sariputta teaching his disciple Punamantani? I read this story when I was a novice and it has stayed in my mind ever since. So before we get on to that, so this um, um, saying about the five khandas, this is um, something also that, uh, again, <laughs> to, uh, can be a bit confusing, but there's a very helpful statement by, made by uh, Ajahn Paniwado, the senior Western disciple of Ajahn Mahabur. His portrait is up in the, in the temple um, by the Dhamma seat. So uh, Ajahn Paniwada once said, uh, the five khandas exist, but they're not real. The form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. They exist, which means literally the etymology of the word exist, existence, means to stand out. X being out, uh, and, and uh, s- uh, s- uh, s- uh, sistere, or stere, is, the, is to stand. So that which stands out uh, is to exist. And uh, then, so the Dhamma doesn't exist, but it is real. <laughs> so it doesn't. The Dhamma doesn't stand out, but it's it's the uh, that which is real and genuine. So that might be very confusing, like, oh, you know, that will sound like this sort of weird English. But uh, it it uh, is. I feel very uh, very much in accord with what Lumpur Chara is saying here. There, there is no form, feeling, perception, or thought. They only exist in the way of designation. So, in the Heart Sutra, uh, where it says, you know, uh, "Form is emptiness; emptiness itself is form. Form is not separate from emptiness; emptiness is not separate from form." So too, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So that uh, the the five khandas are, are empty of fundamental substance, but they they have, they appear. They have, they have a shape, but no, no essence, no, no fundamental substance. And so that, um, that uh, 
comment here of Don Pochard's, they only exist in the way of designation. The aggregates disappear. They don't really exist, so that there's as a form but no essence. And one of the really helpful teachings that I, I like to, to quote on this is uh, uh, the Buddha was, was by the, um, the river, Yam- uh, river, river Ganges at Ayodhya, and there was a, a lump of foam floating on the surface of the river. And then the Buddha pointed to this lump of, of foam floating along the water and said, you see that lump of foam floating on the river? Rupa, Rupa Kanda, uh, the body material form, is like that lump of foam. And then, so it's, it's got a shape, a, uh, a form, but no essence. Then similarly, he said, uh, feeling, Vedana, is like uh, uh, a water bubble. So like when rain, uh, when the, the rain is, is heavily falling and, it, and the raindrop lands on the surface of a, of a pool or a puddle, then it, it forms a, a bubble for a moment. There's a, a round shape for a, for a moment and then it's gone. So feeling is like a water bubble. And then uh, sanya, perception, said is like a, a mirage, like in, traveling across the desert, you see a, a shape and form, colors in the air, that there's a shape there, but there's no uh, there's no object in that place. There's a form, something that's seen, but no, no substance. And then he says, uh, Sankara, mental formations, are like the trunk of a, uh, of a banana plant, a, 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 um, a plantain. So it's all leaves, like a leek or an onion. It's all leaves and no, no trunk, no essence. And then uh, finally, Vijnana, uh, uh, discriminative consciousness, is like a conjuring trick, like a, a magician performing a conjuring trick. So each of those... It has the same kind of uh, mixture. There's a there's a there's a shape, but no essence, no substance. So there's an appearance, but nothing solid, nothing substantial uh, at the heart. So then he goes on. Have you read the story of Sariputta teaching his disciple Punamantani? I read this story when I was a novice, and it has stayed in my mind ever since. A monk was going to take up the practice of ascetic wandering. So Sariputta, as his teacher, gave him some instruction. Sariputta asked, Punamantani, when you're going on your ascetic wandering, what if someone were to ask you, what happens when the enlightened one passes away? How would you answer him? The monk answered, if this question is asked of me, I will answer that form, feeling, perception, conceptualization and consciousness appear and then cease to be. That's all. That was the correct answer. Sariputta was examining his disciple before letting him go to practice in the ascetic ways. He had the correct view. The aggregates, having come into existence, then pass away. This finished the matter. When you understand this, you should contemplate it further and develop wisdom to see it very clearly. It's not merely arising and passing away. The result will be recognition of your true mind. You will still experience arising and ceasing, but you won't be drawn to happiness and suffering cannot follow you then. Attachment and clinging will be done with. So I um, uh, I uh, looked up that reference, or tried to, uh, and I, I believe that my revered teacher has got his stories a little bit scrambled, <laughs> because Punamantani was actually a monk before Sariputta was. So he wasn't uh, Sariputta's student, he was actually from uh, Kapilavatu, he was a Sakyan. And... Um, 
so that he um, was one of the, the Buddha's early disciples. And there is a dialogue between Sariputta and Punamantani, uh, which is a sutta called the Relay of Chariots. Um, and uh, they, they, they dialogue with each other. And uh, Punamantani was, was one who was recognized as having extraordinary skill at, uh, at teaching and explaining the Dhamma. Um, so it's either a different Punamantani, uh, or it's a different name with Sariputta, uh, say, having a conversation with his uh, student before uh, them going off to, to go on their, their Tudong wanderings. But uh, what I did find is the, a dialogue between uh, Venerable Sariputta and another monk called Yamaka. So I, uh, and I could easily be missing the actual dialogue that Lung Po Chan was referring to. I think he's probably just got the name wrong. That The dialogue between Sariputta and Punamantani is very well known. That the, the relay of chariots actually forms the framework for the Visuddhimagga. Uh, the, uh, so, so it's a very, very significant uh, sutta. Different, um, but uh, it doesn't seem to be that this was a dialogue with Sariputta and a, and a student. But anyway, uh, what happens, this is in the Kanda Sangyuta, the connected discourses on the theme of the five Kandas. And there was a monk called Yamaka. Um, and uh, he has this, this view um, that he says, uh, as I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, uh, a bhikkhu whose taints are destroyed is annihilated and perishes with the breakup of the body and does not exist after death. Yamaka says, yep, that, that's what I, I, um, I, I believe. And uh, so he's criticized by his fellow bhikkhus and uh, they find uh, fault with his understanding. And so they ask Venerable Sariputta to go and have a... Um, uh, a conversation with him. So since those bhikkhus were unable to detach the Venerable Yamaka from that pernicious view, they rose from their seats and approached Venerable Sariputta. So then uh, Sariputta asks him the same question, and then he has a whole, um, uh, say, an analytical discussion. Um, uh, what do you think, friend Yamaka? Is form permanent or impermanent? Um, and so then at that point he goes through the whole of the Anathalakana Sutta, the discourse on not-self. And then he goes through this, this analysis of each of the five khandas. What do you think, friend Yamaka? Do you regard form, rupa, as the Tathagata? No, friend. Do you regard feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness as the Tathagata? No, friend. What do you think, friend Yamaka? Do you regard the Tathagata as in form? No, friend. Do you regard the Tathagata as apart from form? No, friend. Do you regard the Tathagata as in feeling, as apart from feeling, as in perception, as apart from perception, as in volitional formations, as apart from volitional formations, as in consciousness, as apart from consciousness? No, friend. What do you think, friend Yamaka? Do you regard form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness as the Tathagata all taken together? No, friend. What do you think, friend Yamaka? Do you regard the Tathagata as one who is without form, without feeling, without perception, without volitional formations, without consciousness? No, friend. And then Sariputta goes on. But, friend, when the Tathagata is not apprehended by you as real and actual uh, here in this very life, 
Is it fitting for you to declare, as I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, a bhikkhu whose taints are destroyed, is annihilated and perishes with the breakup of the body and does not exist after death? Yamaka, understanding this, this subtle and profound teaching, says, Formerly, friend Sariputta, when I was ignorant, I did hold that pernicious view, but now that I have heard this Dhamma teaching of the Venerable Sariputta, I have abandoned that pernicious view and have made the breakthrough to the Dhamma. So then Sariputta says, Ah, if, friend Yamaka, they were to ask you, Friend Yamaka, when a bhikkhu is an arahant, one whose taints are destroyed, what happens to him with the breakup of the body after death? Being asked thus, what would you answer? If they were to ask me this, friend, I would answer thus. Friends, form is impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering has ceased and passed away. Feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering has ceased and passed away. Being asked thus, friend, I would answer in such a way. Good, good, friend Yamaka. And so then he um, has, uh, applauds Yamaka's uh, understanding. So it's this... Um, that that kind of analysis of like if you can't find the Tathagata in the five khandas, apart from the five khandas, having the five khandas, not having the five khandas, um, but yet you know, the the Tathagata is, then uh, if you can't define that pre- that quality of enlightened presence in terms of the five khandas, why how can you say that uh, at the end of uh, the life of the body then? Uh, the uh, an enlightened being is quote unquote annihilated and perishes uh, after death. So it's a subtle point, and it's also why you uh, you you, um, you uh, the the Buddha uh, wouldn't respond when people ask you where does an enlightened being go at the breakup of the body. The Buddha would say basically wrong question, <laughs> and that uh, or that you're asking a question in a way that presumes a reality that doesn't exist. But that's where this uh, this passage that uh, Lumpur is quoting it comes here. It might come in other places as well, but this that was what I could find for today. So that's Sutta number eighty five in the um, Kanda Sangyuta, the connected discourses about the five Kandas. If you want to. But if anyone can come up with the Sariputta giving advice to a young monk about to go on Tudong, please. I'll work on it's around, it does ring a bell, but it's not. I'm pretty sure it's not Puna Mantani because I, I looked up Puna, I looked up Puna Mantani, and uh, and the, yeah, he actually, you know, as I said, he was a monk before Sariputta was, so it doesn't really fit. And he was an arahant before Sariputta was. So, so any questions on that? Comments, thoughts. If you're interested, there's a, the, the sutta that comes after that, number 86, is a dialogue with between the Buddha and a monk called Anuradha. And uh, in the, the, the book um, called The Island, of, of, about Nibbana, that Ajahn Pasna and I did, there's a whole kind of careful sort of going through that teaching. It's very, very similar to the teaching to, to Yamaka. So if anyone wants to follow that up and sort of pick through it in a bit more detail, you'll find that in the chapter called The Unapprehendability of the Enlightened. I think it's chapter, uh, chapter 10 or chapter 11. So just to read a little bit more. So this goes on to um, another question from Ajahn Jagara. 
From what you were saying, it sounds like there is something else outside of the five aggregates. Is it called original mind or... It's not called anything. All of that is finished. Someone may want to call it original something or other, but it's all done with, exhausted. The original things are exhausted. So it's not called original mind? <laughs> As a convention, we can say that. If we don't have any conventions, there's nothing to talk about. No original or old or new or whatever. Anything we speak about, all those designations such as old or new, are just convention. Without convention, there's no way to gain understanding. But you should know the limits of it. Um, and I think the actual, the, the verbatim translation of, uh, of that little passage, that I think Paul Bright has done a bit of, um, uh, sort of making it palatable for a, a Western audience, uh, Lumpucha actually says something like, if there's anything left, just throw it to the dogs. <laughs> actually, that, uh, it's, and it's quite a sort of blunt delivery that uh, he, he gives. Um, because, I, 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 again, I wasn't there, but uh, my, my reading of the dynamic of the conversation is that you can feel that uh, the questioner is trying to pin things down in terms of words and thinking of this original mind as a thing in a world of other things. Uh, and then Ajahn Charles says, it's not called anything. All of that is finished. Yeah. Or, or the original things are exhausted. Yeah. Again, if it's a thing, any kind of thingness is necessarily not, not it. It's a, that uh, is the, the mind compounding and, and believing in its, the things that it, it has compounded. So it's not called original mind. <laughs> so yeah, we can we can use conventions, but then again, the one of the significant things uh, of the Buddha's teaching is that he was very aware of. You know, we use the, the the language and pronouns like he, she, we, they, uh, this person, that person. We use those kind of words without confusion about any kind of uh, creating an idea of an independent, permanent self. And so that he was, you use what the language and, and conventions of speech for the purpose of communication, and not to uh, create a, a theory about identity. Then he says, um, "How much samadhi is necessary to reach this kind of understanding?" Six point three meters. <laughs> Around that. Uh, enough. Well, you, he was a scientist. So. <laughs> enough to have control of the mind. Without samadhi, what'll he be able to do? Without a well-focused mind, you won't reach this point. It should be enough to be able to see. Enough for wisdom to arise. I don't know how to measure how much. What degree of tranquility does the mind need to attain? Let's say to the degree where you no longer have any doubt. <laughs> Kind of handing it back to the can you you know can you see your mind trying to think your way to certainty? That's enough. If you ask, I have to answer like this. Then he uh, then there's a question: Are the one who knows and original mind the same? No, no, no. The one who knows is something that can change. It's our awareness. Everyone has this. So not everyone has original mind. And Paul responds. The original mind is in every person. Everyone has the one who knows. But the one who knows, the Puru, is something you can never reach 
conclusion with. Original mind exists in everyone, but not everyone can see it. Is the one who knows a self? It isn't. It's only awareness arising. Questioning like this only leads to endless confusion. You won't come to clear knowledge just from hearing another's words, thinking that if you ask the right questions about all the fine details, you can find out the truth is not how it works. It's really something to be realized for yourself, but take the words and investigate what they point to. So you can, even through these uh, many years, this was 1979, was what, 40, 44 years ago, you can uh, feel the energy of the exchange, Lumpur kind of <laughs> rolling his eyes somewhat, and uh, the sincere Western uh, questioners uh, trying to figure it all out and to have their doubts cleared. But um, it's a... Uh, uh, and also that the way that Lumpur explained things was not always utterly consistent, so he might talk about things in different ways at different times. But uh, I feel it's... It's a. Um, these are areas that uh, we can very valuably investigate in, in our own lives, in our own practice. We have this time of uh, winter retreat, so we've got a lot of space and time for, for this kind of contemplation. And the 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 one who knows is a, a an English translation of the the Thai term puru. Pu comes from uh, purisa or a person. So like is a Thai word that's based on a a Pali word, um, and Ru is the word for to know. So Puru, it it's, it can refer to a lot of different things, from just the cognizing capacity of the mind, all the way to the the wisdom of a fully enlightened Buddha. So it it has a big range of meanings, but the translating it as the one who knows, it can give a sense of a of like an inner little homunculus, a little sort of being parked inside our our brain or our, uh, in our, our jitta that is the the knowing the knowing bit of of me um, and so that uh, an- another way of translating it or rendering it is the element of knowing or the tatu is the pali word for the element like earth water fire wind consciousness and space and so on the datu the the element of knowing so uh, uh, the Tatru uh, is another term. Ajahn Jayasaro, Ajahn Buddhadasa would use that as an alternative to Puru because often that would seem to be a, affirming a sense of a personal identity and individuality. Whereas the element of knowing, the Tat, uh, the Vija Datu, the Pali for that would be Vija Datu, the, the element of, of awareness, is uh, doesn't give it that same kind of uh, unhelpful personal quality or that I would say inaccurate personal quality so uh, per, I, I like to use the term vijadatu the the element of, of knowing or the element of awareness as a way to to render that as so rather than the one who knows the element of, of knowing is uh, I feel is uh, more helpful more accurate and uh, say beneficial so seven o'clock has come around already so let's leave it there for today